This is an ABC podcast. In 1971, a farmer named Cecil Smart was living on a property on New Zealand's North Island and he decided to dig a ditch. So Cecil brought in a digger and as the digger was scraping away at the ground, it unearthed something buried in the swamp, a set of five intricately carved interconnected wooden panels. And when put together, these panels formed something that looked like like a huge shield or the side of a house. And the panels were astonishingly beautiful. They would later be described as a masterpiece of Maori art with interlocked serpentine figures and faces. And now, having been released from all those years of darkness and stillness, the panels that are known as Tamotanui Epa went on an adventure. An adventure that took them to New York, to Geneva and to London. They became embroiled in an international court case and in the ransom of a child who'd been kidnapped by Italian criminals. Dr Rachel Buchanan is here. Rachel's an historian and a journalist who is a descendant of Taranaki, where this work was created. Rachel's written a wonderful book on the Taranaki panels and on the mayhem that was unleashed when they entered the waking world. Her book is called Tomotanui Epa. Hi, Rachel. Oh, kia ora, Richard. I first became aware of this story from Mark Fennell's outstanding show, Stuff the British Stole. When did you become aware of the existence of these beautiful panels, Rachel? Um, it was in 2019, and uh, I was back in New Zealand uh, to give a lecture at the Govett Brewster and just popped down to Pukiariki, which is the uh, museum in, in New Plymouth. So New Plymouth's a city on the west coast of the North Island, halfway between Auckland and Wellington. Anyway, I popped in just to have a look at all the uh, the, the Māori gallery, and I really was stopped in my tracks by these five uh, interconnected carvings that were spinning on a wee stand. And I had one of those moments where uh, I just felt, I just felt sort of rooted to the spot. Then I felt a sense of awe. Then I felt a sense of wonder. And then it was almost like, oh, I probably need to do something about this. So as a as a writer, I just I try and keep my mind open for those sorts of messages. I hope that doesn't sound too odd, but I get a you know a little spark of something, Richard, and then I think, right, I might just do something about it. Rachel, that doesn't sound weird at all to me at all. They come from that place, Taranaki, you're speaking of on the. North Island, this is your ancestral land. What's the land like? Can you paint a picture of it for me? Well, I absolutely love it there. I mean, it's extremely green. Um, the whole of Taranaki is dominated by the mountain, uh, Taranaki. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, the mountain was known as Mount Egmont after some nobody British military <laughs> bloke. And uh, now now the mountain is Taranaki, his rightful name. So it's a beautifully symmetrical mountain, um, the second most perfect mountain behind Fuji, and uh, so much so that it stood in, in one of Tom Cruise's lesser-known works, The Last of the Samurai. Uh, Taranaki was Fuji. Apparently it was cheaper to film there than uh, just outside of Tokyo. So, yeah, there's the mountain. Then there's this coastline. And what's different about beaches there is the sand is black. So it's iron sand beaches. And they're really, uh, I mean, when I was little, I just thought that every beach had black sand. I now know that that's unusual. So you've got, you can be swimming in the surf and then looking up and there's the mountain looking down at you. Big weather, big issues, big history. I'm, I'm from that place in the deepest sense possible. They almost seem alive, the figures, because of the way they're interlocked. They seem to writhe almost. You know, sometimes I can look at these these artworks and see um, sorrow, 
Other times I see a deep sense of mischief and there is that real feeling that I often, when I was working on this story, just felt as if these people could step out of the carving. So um, in, in, in Māoridom, the idea is that when an ancestor is um, remade as a carving, they've literally sort of returned to life in a way. And um, my whānau had the, a direct experience of that. My dad passed away in 2017. He, he was a paediatrician. And dad was um, the founder of the Māori Health Committee of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. And he did um, work on both sides of the ditch on um, trying to elevate Indigenous health. Anyway, there was a... Um, a carving had been commissioned for the officers in Wellington and it turned out that dad was represented in this carving and we were all, it was really quite like a huge honour but also like far out, the old man's back again and one of my kids, Frances, I was trying to explain to her what this meant that dad had returned and she said, do you mean like he's been sort of 3D printed? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what I mean and so I think that like that child's observation uh -huh. that her granddad had kind of returned and was now three-dimensional in, in wood kind of guided me towards looking at these carvings as people as well as artworks. And I spent so long trying to imagine what was in the minds and bodies of these people. What 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 were they doing there and what were they doing when they were created? Like, who did they represent? What were the artists thinking of when they, they created these incredible figures? But also, what did they want to do now in the present? Well, how would they have been displayed at the time of their creation? They would have been on a pātaka or food store it would have been a reasonably small structure and um, elevated off the ground. So pātaka were storehouses for um, seeds, for gifts of high value like uh, cloaks, greenstone ornaments and weapons and, um, you know, special kinds of food. So these, um, what's cool about a pātaka is that the carvings are displayed on an exterior wall. So really everyone who was coming and going about their business back in the late 1700s, early 1800s would have just been looked down on and looked up at these figures. You say that people would have looked up at these carvings. Mm. How high off the ground would they have been? Um, I think that it varied, Richard. Some of them, like, several metres and others perhaps just on a raised platform just to ensure that the pests and rodents couldn't actually get in and nibble away at what was in there. But some pātaka I've seen pictures of were actually really quite high off the ground and, and it was almost like a scramble. You might have to climb up a rope or a wee ladder or something to get inside and retrieve whatever you wanted to retrieve. You were just saying then that the, the panels seem to come from have been dated to the late 1700s. Mm. What was going on in New Zealand at that time? Um, it was a time of turmoil, the late 1700s. I mean, you had... Um, whalers and missionaries were starting to rock up uh, to New Zealand and, and that was bringing a lot of change. Uh, sealers, whalers, yeah, religious people. And with, with the arrival of those ones came the arrival of guns. And that, that was the huge force that started changing the world of Taranaki and the rest of New Zealand as well. The arrival of muskets, that, that really shifted the power balance before muskets sort of arrived in the early 1800s, late 1700s, Utu, or balancing up a debt, was really conducted. So war was one way that would happen, but it was all with, not with guns. Once muskets arrived, then you had this huge orgy of violence as tribes from the far north who got the guns first rampaged down the island, settling old scores. Does that mean that, like, you could get total victory in war in a way that you perhaps couldn't have gotten before the arrival of guns? You could literally shoot everyone of your enemies dead? Is that what that one of the ramifications of that was? Yes. Yeah, up in the far north there were two iwi. One group had only 30, 30 men. The other one was 300 people and the 300 strong group were like, well, 
well, you know, we've got nothing to worry about here and started advancing on the smaller group. The muskets were fired and quickly the table was turned and, and the remainder of those, the survivors, fled. So I, it must have just been so deeply shocking, Richard, to actually hear the sound of a musket, to mm. see what a musket could do to a human body. So, yes, that's what it meant, that there could be instant victory to the person who had the most guns. So the world started changing and these these carvings really were created on the cusp of this changing world. Whether people knew it or not, the old ways were about to be radically unsettled and there were many disastrous battles in Taranaki and, and many of my ancestors fled down the island to what is now known as Wellington. So you had this huge emptying out of whole areas. People fled, they were either killed or they were taken slave, or they got away. That, that was the world of the early 1800s. And then by 1838, uh, 1839, you had the New Zealand Company ships rocking up with people on board that believed they'd bought land there. That was that private company. And then in 1840, the signing of the treaty. Uh, that should have been a golden dawn for, you know, cooperation and respect. But really, it wasn't too long before war started again. This time uh, in Taranaki, it wasn't other Māori people who were the aggressors, it was the British Crown. So you imagine then that in this wave of violence and anarchy that was unleashed by the arrival of guns, this is why this beautiful set of panels was buried, for what, for safekeeping then? That's it, Richard. Many, many important buildings were dismantled and um, the components of those buildings, especially carvings such as the ones that I've written about, were placed carefully in swamps. And the belief is that swamps were known as excellent preservation places. When wood is placed in a swamp, there's no oxygen there, so it really helps preserve it preserves the wood from decay, from mould, from fungus. So it's really bizarre to think of swamps as a repository. I've worked in previous jobs and archives and, uh, you know, archives are temperature controlled, the light's controlled, you can't get anything damp in there. There's just endless amounts of care taken to preserve what's in there. Um, but this was a different kind of repository and a really amazing one, uh, literally under the feet of, of invaders where these were hidden. And how do you imagine that day when it became necessary? Was it like one of those days where, like, an apocalypse was upon them and they just had to drop everything and run and, and bury what was valuable? Yes, I imagine it as as absolute terror. I, I think that um, I think everyone then would have had to work really quickly. My feeling is that there was just terror and urgency and a sense of let's quickly do what we can do. We know this spot, this small, this small wetland, this ephemeral waterway. We'll put this here quickly now, like putting something in a safe, I guess, Richard, and thinking we're fleeing this place, but we'll come back to the safe and retrieve our family treasures. I think there would have been a small group of people working to do this. I think there would have been markers placed perhaps near where um, the taonga were put into the earth, or at least everyone would have discussed, OK, this is where they are. When, when the coast is clear and things are OK, we can come back. We'll retrieve this and resume our life. That, that's what I believe happened, but... It didn't happen. It did not happen, no. <laughs> they were placed in the earth. The people who did that, I hope that they escaped. I, I know that some of them wouldn't have, that they would have been enslaved or killed and then, you know, left. And then when people started creeping back in the 1840s and 1850s, it wasn't long before, um, yeah, the first shots were fired in the so-called New Zealand Wars in 1860 at, at Waitara, exactly really close to where these carvings were asleep. 
Um, asleep. And that, so they were just asleep in the earth for, what, 150, 60, 70 years while all this mayhem is going up on the surface. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wow. Just having a nice long doze nice like long teenagers hour. just on overdrive, <laughs> just lying there. And, you know, it's amazing that they stayed asleep because the state highway was put through like oh. in 1884, the spot where the epaulet is about 20 metres from this big road. You know, they slept pretty heavily. They they just stayed hidden, Richard, until the time was right. That's how I see it. So we fast forward now to 1971 and Cecil mm. Smart, the farmer I mentioned at the beginning, is trying to dig a ditch or have a ditch dug across the land and mm. these panels resurface. They come to the surface. Once they'd been spotted, what did Cecil Smart do with them, Rachel? Yeah, well, Cecil... Um uh, Cecil was a Pākehā man, a, a non-Māori New Zealander, and he called his mate Melville Manukonga. Uh, Melville ran a souvenir shop on the main drag uh, in um, New Plymouth. I don't actually recall that shop, but one of my childhood mates does. She's like, oh, yeah, we used to, that was near the bus stop. So anyway, Melville Manukonga was a Māori person as well, and he, he, came, he said, look, come and have a look, see what you can find. And Melville was um, far more expert than Cecil, uh, actually knew, he... he Carefully, um, his affidavit he gave to the police was that he then carefully walked through around this ditch and noticed faces looking up at him. <laughs> and and I think Melville would have been pretty excited. Uh, he said he told police that he felt like a gold prospector finding gold, whereas Cecil and his brother Morris really had no idea. And when they were interviewed by police, they said made comments like, oh, they were just bits of wood. I, I didn't see any value. I just thought they were sticks of wood. And, yeah, I was interested in those comments, which would have been a common response from Pākehā New Zealanders back then. So, yes, Melville knew he was much more of the connoisseur who had this eye for value, and he lifted them out um, carefully because they'd had that long sleep, and, and if he didn't if you didn't care for them at that moment of emergence, the wood could just crumble or fall apart, you know. So Melville, probably with the help of Cecil, treated the um, carvings with linseed oil and also PVA glue, uh, wrapped them in sacks and took them back to his house in New Plymouth. And there he set about doing, as he described it, further restoration work. And um, Melville Manukonga, what he told police and um, public servants was that he intended to clean the carvings up, so to speak, and present them to the Taranaki Museum. But that didn't happen. In all the legal documents that I had access to, it appeared that Melville was really, really irritated that the director of the Taranaki Museum, Rigby Allen, didn't show up when he said he would. And um, this slight... Uh, I, it's funny, Richard, I think someone getting their nose out of joint or getting the pip <laughs> is a really, really big motivator for right. a whole lot of things. Um, <laughs> you know, humans don't like being slighted. And no. I think, yeah, that thing of being offended and just thinking, well, well, if you're not interested, then I'll find someone else who is. And so, who was that someone else that was interested, Rachel? Yeah. So the someone else, there was various people that came to Melville's little garage to have a look at these carvings. Um, and eventually one day a young British art dealer and his wife, so the a couple, Bobby and Lance Entwistle, happened to be travelling around New Zealand and he told me that they stopped to get petrol somewhere in the back blocks of Taranaki, said, look, we're, we're here looking for artefacts, that's their word, do you know of anyone? And that the, someone at the petrol station said, oh, you might want to try this guy's house. I mean, who knows? But whatever happened, Lance and Bobby turned up at Melville's modest house on the edge of New Plymouth and walked into the garage and saw these five carvings laid out side by side. Entwistle told me that he 
when he saw the carvings there, he he felt like he wanted to drop to his knees in front of the majesty of these works. And he that's what he said to me, um, you know, all these years later. But uh, perhaps at the time he kept his true response veiled somewhat. Uh, as, as yeah, it's not a good one... bargaining ploy, is it, to fall to your knees at the majesty of the work before you want to buy it, is it? <laughs> no. no. So, so what did he offer to pay for for these these panels then? Yeah, there was a bit of argy-bargy and um, at first Manu Konga said, no, they're not for sale. And then Entwistle came back a couple of days later and said, I'll, I'll give you 6000 New Zealand dollars. And uh, that, that was really an enormous sum at the time. Uh, my understanding is more than a year's, you know, average income. Uh, so that was a pretty big sum of money for anyone uh, living in, in New Zealand at that time. And uh, Manu Konga took, took the money and um, then the carvings were wrapped in sacks and uh, Entwistle drove off. Uh, he assured Manu Konga that they wouldn't be taken out of the country and that he was setting up some sort of collection on the East Coast. I mean, who knows? It's 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 hard to see how that story would have been truthful. But Entwistle took those carvings and then he put them in a crate and labelled the crate furniture and smuggled them out as furniture to New York. So now the panels are up and running and on their way to New York City. Tell me who it was that Lance Entwistle sold these panels to once he got to New York. Yeah, so Lance and Bobby obviously knew, um, had a great eye for who their market could be, and he got in touch with a man called George Ortiz, who was a Swiss-Bolivian collector of so-called primitive art. And uh, so 1973, Lance makes the phone call, George picks up and says, yes, I'll fly out to have a look. And, you know, in 1973, it wasn't really normal for people to be jetting about, no. um, you know, from Europe to America, just on the off chance there might be something they would like to buy. Once I started looking into it, I was like, where, where did that money come from? I've learned, you know, as a writer, you have to follow blood and money are two really important things behind any good story. And how was he able to do this? And Ortiz was the grandson of um, Simon Patino, who was a Bolivian man, who was, my understanding, is a very from a very modest family and um, was working as a clerk in a shop in the Andes. And one day someone came in, couldn't pay the bill that he owed for whatever he'd bought from the shop and gave, in, instead of money, gave Simon Patino uh, a little slip of paper, which was um, the title to a mine, to a prospecting title on a mountain in the Andes. And that turned out to be the richest deposit of tin in the world. So this, this Farno went from being really ordinary kind of people to these multi, multi billionaires within the space of a generation. So that's where George's money came from. His dad was a diplomat. He grew up on Avenue Foch in Paris uh, with the Anassises and the Rothschilds. So this is a family of enormous wealth and privilege who had, you know, great taste. They were connoisseurs and they loved to collect. So that's George was the person that Lance reached out to. And George came to New York to the apartment in Central Park. And so presumably George Ortiz, the connoisseur, was enslaved by the beauty of these panels as well. What did he pay for them? So he paid uh, 65000 US, pretty good profit margin in a, for a, you know, in a few weeks from 6000 New Zealand to 65000 US. That's what he paid. But the works had been smuggled out of New Zealand. So in selling them to George Ortiz, what kind of understanding did they have to reach between them? Was there a bit of nodding and winking going on? Well, the, it's um, Entwistle, there was a, a promise made by Ortiz that he wouldn't talk about them or show them to anyone for two years, which is quite unusual. It's um, Everyone's very delicate around who knew what and when. So the provenance was absolutely faked. I, I 
I think it's pretty clear from the evidence I've looked at that Ortiz knew that Entwistle had smuggled these carvings and that they had recently been removed from New Zealand rather than the uh, provenance that they were eventually given, which was that Entwistle had bought them uh, or Ortiz had bought them from someone who had bought them in 1935 in an op shop type of thing, which just seems unthinkable, but who knows? So, yeah, I mean, there was that moment of exchange, Richard. I do think in the early 1970s, this sort of thing was really quite normal. And I think probably it still is normal in some ways, perhaps not for museums and art galleries, but the private collecting world, I think there's a little bit of a nod, nod, wink, wink kind of way of operating where just don't dig too deep. You just want to take things on face value and move on. So, yeah, George made the promise he wouldn't talk about these carvings for a couple of years, and uh, and that was it. So on the one hand, you have Cecil, who had dug them up in the first place and thought they were worthless old bits of rubbish, maybe a couple of old whittling sticks or something. And then on the other hand, you have a fabulous connoisseur like George Ortiz, this super rich connoisseur of so-called primitive art. If you can enter the mind of such a man for just a moment, Rachel, if that's at all possible... What do you think he gets from that? What's the emotional satisfaction a man like that receives from so-called primitive art created by Maori people or Indigenous people anywhere? Well, the word that's coming to mind is authenticity and rarity. So, I, you know, these Taranaki carving in this style, which is this really deep serpentine style where everything is intertwined and interconnected, um, ceased basically from 1820 on because of almost 100 years of war. So there's the rarity factor that, you know, there there weren't carved houses being made in Taranaki through the 19th century like there were in other parts of New Zealand. So George was an expert and a connoisseur. By that I mean he was up with all the anthropological writing and he he, um, was aware of modern art's infatuation with so-called primitive art. So I think it was really like, if I try and look inside his mind, was he... On one level, his interest and passion is a complement to the skills of my of our ancestors that they could create these works that are touching some sort of deeper truth about about who we are and and who we are as I guess Maori people and who Taranaki is and what that place is like. So yes, perhaps Ortiz was was searching for something like that that he he felt that when he touched these pieces or possessed them that he was touching. I don't know, something, I don't want to say the divine, but maybe that is how he felt. Yes, well, when you say that, Rachel, I'm reminded of a time when I was in Paris in the 1990s and I was in an art gallery that was exhibiting Indigenous Australian work, Western Desert painting from the likes of Emily Noire. And the work was epic and cosmic and beautiful and it sort of thrummed with all this sacred energy. And it seemed to floor these sophisticated Parisians who were staring at it in kind of awe and wonder. And I sort of read into their faces a sense of loss, now that we live in a secular age, the loss of having sacred art objects infused in everyday life. Perhaps that factor was at work within George Ortiz as well. Oh, I think it definitely is. I mean, if you look at the language used still probably to describe many of these um, taonga, not, yeah, from all round New Zealand, there is that sense of awe, wonder, the sacred beyond, I don't know, this primitive knowledge that's sort of closer to the moment of creation. I'm not sure. I mean, for, for me, I have a very different view, and that's that's not to do with the past. It's to do with the present. 
and it's saying what what are these what are these Taonga saying to me now and what what does it mean for me now as a descendant of Taranaki and of the people who created works of this power? So I, I, I'm, you know, perhaps George, he, he saw something beautiful he wanted to possess and, and use his money to preserve, you know, um, that's perhaps what he told himself. But although he might admire and revere the beauty of these panels, he didn't want to put them in a museum, did he? There wasn't that sense in him that this is a beautiful thing that should be shared with the whole wide world. It was that collector's streak that need to own it, to have it. Yeah, I mean, I guess all of us like beautiful things. We don't all have the budget to buy um, masterpieces of art produced by other people's cultures. I mean, you know, some of us are happy with the vase of flowers or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, George, that's right. He, he had a large collection of treasures from all around the Pacific and Oceania, and um, many of them were very valuable, uh, and I mean valuable in, in, in many ways, not just about the money value attached to them by the Western art system, but also in terms of cultural value. And that value, you know, the mana and wairua of these, of these beautiful artworks survived this terrible displacement. So it survived, it kept going. Even in Geneva, something was still alive there. And, um, you know, I'm sure that George, yeah, perhaps he could feel that too. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Rachel, tell me what happened to George Ortiz and his family on the 3rd of October, 1977. Yes, well, on that day, uh, two Italian criminals, perhaps members of the Red Brigade, uh, came to Ortiz's mansion in Geneva. Uh, his daughter, Graziella, who uh, was on her way to kindergarten, uh, the chauffeur was waiting for the wee girl and uh, the child was snatched by these two people and taken away. And they then made a demand of, it was about 2 million US ransom uh, that Ortiz had to pay to get his daughter back. Um, and yeah, I mean, that must have just been horrific for that whole family. Like that that's every parent's worst nightmare and the child was taken. So Ortiz, to raise the money, even though he was completely loaded and lived in this mansion, he didn't have 2 million to hand. He had to ask his mum for a loan. Uh, she loaned him the money. He got the money to the criminals. The child, Graziella, was returned safe and sound. And uh, then George had to pay his mum back. Um, <laughs> interesting father, <laughs> mother, uh, daughter, yeah, mother-son dynamics there. Who knows what was really going on? But to, to raise the money to pay his mum back, uh, George then had to put up uh, about 240 of his uh, most prized artworks uh, for auction at Sotheby's in New York, in London. And the EPA, known as the Taranaki Pataka panels, were um, considered the prize lot in that auction. So they were all shipped off to London, along with uh, many, many other treasures uh, for this auction at Sotheby's that was set for sort of uh, mid-1978. Obviously, the kidnapping was a big international story. Was the auction a story as well? Yeah. Um, you know how the news uh, world goes, Richard, that the kidnapping meant that the auction was very newsworthy. Uh, Ortiz was, uh, you know, treated with sympathy that he had to part with his treasures, so-called, 
because of this terrible event. And, and you can have sympathy for the man. That's a family tragedy. So, yeah, the auction did generate a lot of um, publicity. And it was um, interesting. There was a sort of an Australian connection to it. So Sir Peter Wilson, the head of Sotheby's, was taking the auction. But the young person who was preparing uh, all the treasures for sale and worked with Ortiz on the catalogue was a young guy called Robert Bleakley, who was from New South Wales. And he was a young left-wing uh, man uh, who'd been a sort of maybe um, flirted with communism. He was on his OE and had a job at Sotheby's and worked closely with Ortiz for four months. So Bleakley was actually involved in showing the EPA to various interested parties from New Zealand. So, Rachel, how did word that this EPA, this set of interconnected panels, was going on sale at Sotheby's, how did word of that reach New Zealand? Yeah, it was a weird chain of events. It was through a guy who owned a TV and radio shop in Inglewood, which is literally the back blocks, Graham Mead. He was just watching TV. There was a filler show um, from the BBC about this auction at Sotheby's, the George Ortiz Auction of Primitive Art. And he he was watching it, just like how you do in a bit of a daze late at night, and then saw these the word Taranaki mentioned and saw these carvings and was like, oh, that's interesting, and mentioned them to a friend that he bumped into at a party, Ron Lambert, who was the new director of the Taranaki Museum, and the alarm bells started ringing for Ron. And he was like, that just sounds, what I'm hearing sort of sounds like something that I've seen a photo of. And Ron, you know, was very, very diligent, went to his desk at the museum, hunted about and found a couple of little box brownie photographs that Manu Konga had taken that had somehow found their way into Rigby Allen's possession, the former director, and he, he joined the dots. So sprung then. They were sprung. So he was able to compare the photo from his desk with the photo in the Sotheby's catalogue. What happened then in New Zealand when they realised that this great work had been smuggled out of the country? Well, what it meant was something really bizarre because um, you would have thought in the 1970s it would have been sort of care factor zero. I think it's easy to think that it's just a contemporary... Um, now now around the world there's concern for stolen treasures and repatriation. It's a more current thing. But actually, 1978, for some bizarre reason, public servants really, really actually just went completely ballistic into overdrive to do the kind of investigations required in two weeks that meant that the, the Minister of um, Internal Affairs then briefed the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who then got on to Crown Law. And within, it was 21 days, I, I made this timeline, I could not believe uh, how quickly they worked. So what was the animating factor here with the New Zealand government, Rachel? Was it that the law had apparently been broken in the smuggling of this artefact out of New Zealand? Or was it because that New Zealand wanted back a priceless cultural treasure? It's really hard to see inside the mind of all those people back then. I, I sort of feel there was some other... I, I think they were being driven by some force beyond them, really, and that that's these carvings, because, you know, at that time, in the mid-1970s, it was the rise of the so-called Māori Renaissance and the land rights movement, and there was a lot of um, political protests, including occupations in Auckland and in Raglan, um, the, the New Zealand government brutally crushed the occupation of Bastion Point, sending the army in to demolish a camp that had been there for uh, 200 days. And yet in the midst of all this, Richard, they decided that they were going to, you know, get, come out all guns blazing, issue this injunction, which had never been done before, and say, no, you can't sell this, these carvings and we want them back. So I wonder, I think there was maybe a little bit of, you bastards aren't going to take this from us. 
New Zealand was sort of flexing its little muscles separate from England. And so maybe there was a bit of an, as, you know, an aspect of like, hey, these people shouldn't get away with it. They've told lies and, and we don't like it. And these carvings are ours. I mean, of course, that wasn't as simple as that. But whatever the reasons, Richard, the New Zealand government acted very decisively. George Ortiz, I suppose he's going, what are you talking about? I got these things from a friend who was a friend of some guy in Connecticut. Mm. He's saying that at the time. How did Ortiz respond to this injunction brought forward by an indignant New Zealand government? He completely lost the plot. That's my understanding. <laughs> he was having a lunch with uh, Roger Duff, who was, you know, an eminent anthropologist who was over there to do a bit of shopping himself. Mm. And the two men were having this lovely lunch and then news came through and Ortiz was extremely distressed. I mean, the words that are used in the records are kind of encoded, but I really think it was just shock, anger and rage. And from that day on, I think Ortiz just felt extreme dislike possibly more than that, for the New Zealand government and felt that he had been really wronged. Rachel, why do you think he was so angry? He must have known he had smuggled goods on his hands. Who can say, Richard? Mm. I, I mean, I feel that if if you think about life, um, you, you know, people can keep doing the things they're doing and feel entitled to do it and then when they're called out can be really, you know, take umbrage about it where the rest of the world might go, well, you had it coming. So he was, he was shocked and he was upset and dis distraught but the EPA were removed from the sale and the sale went ahead without them. So then the injunction went up through the legal system in Britain and got all the way to the House of Lords. What happened when it reached the House of Lords? Yeah, so there was, there was three stages. There was the injunction, there was the um, case before the High Court and Justice Stoughton actually found in favour of New Zealand and said that, yes, the carvings needed to be returned, that they were in fact forfeit to the Crown, as in the British Crown, and needed to come back to New Zealand. Then Entwistle and Sotheby's appealed that. It went to the Court of Appeal, and Denning, who was at the end of his long career, a man in his 80s, gave a really beautiful judgment, uh, that poetic, that talked about the beauty of these artworks, the context in which they may have been created and displayed, and then just said, well, too bad, New Zealand, your law can't apply here. It's our law and, and these are ours. And then the House of Lords came to the same conclusion that the carvings had not been forfeit automatically when they were illegally exported. And furthermore, New Zealand law couldn't apply in England. That would be wrong, wouldn't it, Richard? I mean, I was often laughing to myself because uh, British law was applied with uh, <laughs> great vigour in Taranaki overrunning the sovereignty that existed there. So the, the verdict found that New Zealand law couldn't override British law once it was on British soil. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. That The relevant acts did not automatic forfeiture could not had not taken place with the illegal smuggling. And how did and, that make you feel when you read that, knowing of British colonial history in New Zealand, Rachel? Well, it was just... I just... I found it really ironic, I guess, because I poured over these judgments. I'm not a lawyer, um, but I spent a lot of time reading them and really contemplating what was being said. And um, the, the extraterritorial sovereignty was a phrase that lots of the judges used, that you couldn't have New Zealand exercising extraterritorial sovereignty. And anyone who's a descendant of Taranaki knows intimately how much British law was used to crush us. And, and I'm not, that's not a past tense thing. Uh, any, anyone who has shares so-called in Māori land knows that the law has been brutally used over many, many decades to create this absolute tangle that makes it very hard to do anything. So, yes, I did, I did just think, well, that's a fine judgment um, that they've made and um, isn't it wonderful that the UK can erect its barriers to keep what it wants safe there and had no compunction about creating many, many laws to strip others 
both Māori people and obviously the same thing happened in Australia. So, But the, the I guess to put a more positive spin on it is that after the House of Lords found against New Zealand, what I really found fascinating and uplifting was that the New Zealand government didn't stop. They had their blood up and they were really angry about what had occurred and the fact that they'd lost and, and wanted these treasures back. And they then explored um, very radical um, litigation that would have meant the owners of the land where the epa lay, so people of Ngāti Rahiri, could sue Ortiz direct for return. Because, of course, the Crown doesn't own these carvings. If anyone owns them, it would be descendants of the people who created them. And in New Zealand, there's two systems of land tenure, and the Māori Land Court is totally separate from the other way that land is handled. So these epa were on Māori land, and then there were these four representative owners that were selected to sue Ortiz direct. And I've, I often thought, wouldn't it have been amazing if that had happened back in 1978, before the statute of limitations had expired, and that those people had succeeded? I think it would have sent a precedent around the world. But nevertheless, Richard, it was wonderful that the Crown acted so strongly in favour of its treaty partner and funded, you know, top-level legal advice from the best law firm in the UK to actually say, could we do this? Could these Māori people actually sue this multi-multi-millionaire direct for the return of their property? Nonetheless, the appeal failed. <laughs> it, it failed on the basis that extraterrestrial law couldn't apply. But Sotheby's had withdrawn it from sale on behalf mm. of George Ortiz. So presumably Ortiz still had the panels after this court decision. What did he do with them once this was resolved through the courts? So what he did then, it was what I see as pure dummy spits sort of territory. He he wanted to... They were so... There wasn't any joy left in these beautiful artworks for Ortiz and he put them in the Freeport. So that's a huge... It's a huge tax-free warehouse really in Geneva where people like Ortiz and others store their precious possessions and it's it's been described as the biggest museum in the world that you'll never see. I think it's not even strictly part of Geneva, it's just this enormous facility where all sorts of things are there like uh, luxury cars and Picassos and gold bars and expensive cigars, you name it, um, artworks stolen cultural treasures, they're all there. And that's where our ancestors were put. And they spent, you know, three decades in there. And while they were in that that darkness there, Ortiz continued to try through various intermediaries to, to get the New Zealand government to buy them back or to sell them to another gallery or institution. Many, many people kept advocating for the carvings. And that what's sort of interesting about the failed legal action is that they placed it placed a sort of rahui or ritual prohibition on the sale of these carvings. In a way, it sort of protected them from going into the hands of another private collector. I mean, who knows what deals were being discussed behind the scenes? I'm not sure. All I know about is the work that happened as various intermediaries tried to approach the New Zealand government and other institutions to say, listen, we'll give you the carvings if you give us this, you know, goddess from uh, Nukuroa, or we'll give you the carvings if you give us this much money, or, you know, the, the intermediary for Ortiz, Robert Bleakley, the Australian who'd been the young auctioneer at Sotheby's and then went on to found Sotheby's Australia. He had this amazing um, idea of, like, approaching the National Gallery of Australia and saying, listen, back in 1978, Robert Muldoon, the then Prime Minister, gave you this Colin McCann painting, Victory Over Death, which is, uh, you know, one of their real treasures, and how about you buy these carvings from Ortiz and gift them back to New Zealand as a sort of evening up? I really loved uh, imagining that, that that would have happened. It didn't go anywhere, but it gives you a feel for 
just there was a lot of things happening behind the scenes in this art world, how, how people deal and how they make try and make trades. So throughout these decades, they lay there entombed, if you like, in this weird warehouse of the super rich in Geneva. How were they released again and brought back to New Zealand? So they were there for about three decades and eventually it was the death of Ortiz that made um, a move possible. So Ortiz passed away in uh, 2013 and at that time, um, yeah, what I love what I love about these carvings is the way they bring people together. So the form of the carvings themselves is, is a whole lot of people intertwined and in a way it's a script for the story itself um, post-71 is that many, many unlikely alliances were formed to make the return home possible. So Arapata Hakiwai, who's the senior Māori person at Te Papa. Te Papa, that's New Zealand's National Māori Museum. Yes. He he went to Geneva as part of a delegation and he was joined by Stephen Hooper, uh, our art historian from England, and they worked directly with Ortiz's children and his uh, widow to talk about, look, could the carvings come home? I know that's what your dad wanted. The time is right now. And, you know, there was... I. It's really interesting to see the negotiation parameters, how money was talked about, how the question of ownership would be talked about. I mean, the New Zealand government maintained that Ortiz never had ownership of these carvings, that it was... He just had possession of them. But um, things, things went well and a, a deal was struck and uh, the New Zealand government paid the Ortiz whanau $4.6 million and and then... Our Taonga came home in 2014. And what was that return, that homecoming like? Uh, once once the carvings returned to Taranaki itself, they were brought on to Uwai Marae, like a meeting house just out of Waitara. So they were brought on by all descendants of Taranaki and welcomed there into that marae. It was a stupendous event by all accounts. And then after that, they then were taken to Pukiariki, the museum, and, and installed there. Now, did I read somewhere, Rachel, that there was an earthquake the day they returned, or is that just urban myth? Yes, there was an earthquake the day <laughs> they returned, and the earthquake occurred, but there's a funny little parallel to that, because the day I finished the final rewrite of the rewrite of this manuscript, there was also an earthquake in Melbourne at the literal moment I finished it, an enormous earthquake. Um, there hadn't been an earthquake in Melbourne for a really long time, and I was sitting in my writing room and just like <laughs> far out. And furthermore, when I was in New Zealand with the publisher discussing um, images, and we just agreed on a whole lot of complex things to do with that, there was a huge power outage at that moment. <laughs> so, um, look, I don't know, you, it depends on your view about the spiritual realm, but certainly working on this is yeah, many examples, like many things that have happened that make me think we don't we don't know all there is to know, Richard. That's what I like about your book, Rachel. On the one hand, you've got the kind of relentless, painstaking carefulness of a of an archivist and historian, but on the other hand, there's all this lovely magical thinking that seems to be required to make the subject live and breathe again. <laughs> I hope it's not too magical. Oh, I don't know. This is this was a new departure for me, and I, I was really driven by a phrase or a, a saying that one of my mentors, Mahara Okiroa, uh, shared with me, and that's um, ka utu tikino ki te pai, which means the bad will be repaid by the good. And it's sort of a forward-looking statement. And, and I saw that as a guiding thing for my research and for this book, you know, that so many bad things happened in Taranaki. There were so many losses and grievances and harm. But in the end, this all of that has been repaid with something amazing, which is these artworks actually navigating their way back home and these artworks achieving changes in New Zealand legislation so there's far better protection for other taonga. 
and these artworks uplifting everyone who came into contact with them. So that's, I, I wanted Richard, you know, probably you have had that experience of going to a museum or gallery and looking at the little white label. And if the art is so-called primitive or made by an indigenous person, it often says maker unknown or not known or once known. Um, you know, it's so different. Van Gogh, there's like 10 zillion books about that bloke. Whereas our, our um, master artists, they're sort of nameless often. And this book was my way of saying, I don't want to have this little white label with nothing on it. I, I want to have a whole cloak of stories and all this richness around these masterpieces. So that was my driving force was thinking, what if I really took seriously that these carvings are returned people? What if I really took that seriously? What would they think about what's happening? And I just kept going with it. Um, and I, I don't know, it's up to readers to decide what they think. But I was sick and tired of having this absence on our side, on the Māori side, and a whole lot of voices on the Crown side. And I thought, nah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to write another book. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be part of that anymore. I think you can have a little white square next to the artwork that might name the artist and that's where it was made and all that. But I still think that doesn't really matter that much when it comes to a spectacular work of art. The effect on it has you, it, it reaches you in a way that's both personal and mysterious. You feel some strange affinity with the unknown person who created the work or the known person who created the work. And this all goes to the fact I think you can see a picture of an artwork and that might be amazing as I've seen the picture of these panels and they look amazing, but to behold them in the flesh, and I do mean in the flesh, is mm. something else altogether. Oh, yeah. Like, um, it's like being in the presence of these really complex group of people who, yeah, it's an incredible experience. And I agree with you, Richard, that we, we art is mysterious and art does shape us deep inside. And the us is, you know, it's... It's everyone. And I, I guess I just, another thing I really was determined to do is to make sure that these beautiful carvings are considered, you know, not just as art of the old world, but as deeply contemporary artworks that are creating action in the now, such as our conversation that we're having right right in this minute. So, you know, contemporary art, What what is art for? Is art just to make you feel a sense of awe and wonder and beauty? Or is is art about generating action and change. I mean, there's so many things that art can do. And, and I see these, you know, these carvings are, start of, are sort of part of a lineage of excellence that, you know, they're a result of hundreds and hundreds of years of cultural practices that had got to this high point in the 1700s are expressed there and is now being continued by descendants of Taranaki, such as Rangi Kippa and Nahina Hohaia and many other amazing artists from Taranaki that are picking up the, you know, what's been laid down by the makers of these masterpieces. So, I, you know, you can see them. You can visit Pukiariki if you're in New Zealand and you can go and, and contemplate these carvings and the many others in that room upstairs. Uh, maybe be blown away. Now that they have been returned and they're in the country that they were made on, has this brought a degree of, I don't know what, peace or comfort or a sense of serenity to the people of the Taranaki region where you're from? Oh, yeah, serenity is not usually a term that I would associate with. peace? <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I'm reaching no, here, I'm reaching. Yeah, yeah, no, no, there's definitely, well, I think there's this enormous sense of pride um, that, that, these, that these taonga have come back and that all this work happened to bring them back and that the Crown paid this enormous amount of money to bring them back. So that, that definitely is, yes, a deep, 
a deep feeling of satis- feeling of satisfaction. What if the underlying personality of of these these panels is mischievous? What if the underlying personality is they enjoy travel? What if they want to go travelling again, Rachel? Have you thought about that? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, who knows? I, I really feel that they might want to go on another OE. Uh, who knows? I, I mean, why not? They belong. They they deserve to be seen in the best galleries and museums in the world. And, um, you know, maybe mm. the museum's not their final resting place either. Um, I, I think that's a to-be-continued moment, and that's not for me to speak on what might happen next with these amazing artworks. But I don't think that this is the end of their journey. So, yeah, good point, Richard. Fantastic story, Rachel. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Yeah, great, great talking to you, Richard. Rachel Buchanan's book is called Tomotanui Epa. And a big shout-out to Mark Fennell's podcast series, Stuff the British Stole, that alerted us to this story to begin with. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.